From the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill, must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Would you please be seated? Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord God, for this word that you have spoken uh, through your servant. We ask this morning as we look together at this passage that you would have your work by your spirit in our hearts. We know that your desire and your purpose is to make us holy, to make us more like Jesus Christ, our Savior, and we know that process is painful and complicated. We know, Lord, that we wrestle within our hearts between righteousness and sin, and so we ask by your Spirit that you would bring victory over sin and that you would give us new life in the righteousness of Christ and a new desire for the things of God, the things of you. We ask that you would do all of this for your glory. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we pray. Amen. I want to begin this morning with a Thomas Chalmers quote uh, from his probably notorious work, uh, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. It's one of my favorite books for the last 20 years, and it continues to be. But this quote, I think, sets the scene for understanding this passage in Ecclesiastes this morning. Chalmers says this, he says, There is not one of these transformations of the heart in which the heart is left without an object. Its desire for one particular object may be conquered. But as to its desire for having some one object or other, this is unconquerable. Such is the grasping tendency of the human heart that it must have something to lay hold of. See, this this is the process that Solomon has gone through now week in and week out. If you understand the expulsive power of a new affection, that is the basic functioning of the heart, 
you understand week in and week out what Solomon speaks about, right? His heart gravitates towards an object in this world, and it clings to that object with ultimate hope and meaning. It finds the end of that object that there is ultimately no meaning and purpose, and it moves on. His heart then clings to a new object, a new idol, a new thing to worship. He follows it to its logical end, finds it to be empty and meaningless, and he moves on. And so we've been through wisdom. We went last week through pleasure, and this morning we're presented with the object of work. Solomon describes it as toil, but it is, as we know, it is uh, the traditional understanding of work, everything that we've experienced in this world. And this morning he will take us through an examination of work for men and women. Now, it's a very interesting suggestion or an object to try and put at the center of this equation. It's not like pleasure last week. Pleasure was thrilling. It was exciting. We could talk about wine and food and uh, 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 bright, shining things and treasures, okay? Work is not like that, and yet work makes sense as an object that we might find meaning, purpose, and hope in. After all, we all know deep within our hearts we have a sense of call or of purpose that we've been designed for some sort of work, something to put our hands to. And so to try and use that as an object of understanding, meaning, and purpose makes a lot of sense. After all, this is the purpose for creating man in the garden. We read about that in Genesis. That will come into the conversation this morning as we look at what Solomon proposes here in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. And here's what we're going to do this morning. It's very simple. We're going to answer two questions. What's the problem with work? And then where is there hope in our work? Okay? What is the problem with work? And where is there hope in our work? I want to begin by drawing a picture. And our picture begins again with God. I was thinking this morning, I don't know why I always put God at the top right-hand corner of the whiteboard, but I do. Okay? There's God. In the beginning, God creates man. This is Adam. Okay, there he is. And the Bible tells us, beginning in Genesis chapter 1, that God formed the man from the dust of the ground, and then he took the man and he placed him in the garden. This is my garden. Okay? And a palm tree. And some bushes. Okay? God formed the man from the dust of the ground, and he placed him into the garden. And as we begin reading in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, one of the things that is obvious in the explanation of creation is that God made man with one of the primary purposes being that man would work the creation. We see that in Genesis chapter 1. God tells Adam that these hands that I have given you, okay, this is Adam's hands, these hands that I have given you are to be used to exercise dominion and authority over the creation. You are to subdue it and to be fruitful and multiply. That is the implication of the work of the man. But then in Genesis chapter 2, as the, uh, the creation account is, is being explained to us again, it says that God formed the man of the dust of the earth and he placed him in the garden to do what? To work and to tend it. That's the explanation in Genesis chapter 2. And so one of the most basic things that we must acknowledge in the creation account is that there is implicit in the creation, there is an image-bearing responsibility that the man has reflecting the image of God that he has to work the creation, to apply his mind through his hands in the working and the tending of the rest of creation. Now this is an obvious 
image-bearing task because God essentially says to Adam, as I toiled for six days and rested on the seventh, you also are to toil. That's how you bear my image, okay? In your creativity, in the application of your work, in your dominion over the creation and the exercise of your hands, this is part of the image-bearing work of the man. So, just so we recognize, in the heart of the man, there's Adam's heart, okay? In the heart of the man is imprinted deep within his heart a DNA that calls him always to be laboring with his hands, to be working for the glory of God. It's imprinted on the heart of man, and now man will look at the rest of creation, and he will say, I've been created to work. I, God has made me that I would labor, that I would commit myself to something, that I would be involved in the sweat of my brow, that I would exercise dominion, that I would tend, that I would water, that I would cultivate, that I would harvest, that I would care for. It's the work that God gives to the man. Now, as we've talked about in Ecclesiastes 1 and Ecclesiastes 2, the beginning of the chapter, the whole thing is then messed up by Genesis chapter 3, okay? Everything changes in Genesis 3. That's the fall of man. And what happens in the fall of man is God has told Adam, you're to apply your hands and your mind to the work of the creation. In Genesis chapter 3, the relationship between God and man is broken, but so is the relationship between the man and the rest of creation. Those lines mean broken. Those are the broken lines, okay? What happens then in creation is very simple. There's a tension now that exists in every one of our lives, and the tension goes like this. Deep within our hearts, there's a design that we are purposed to work, but the creation that was designed to yield itself to the image bearer of God no longer yields itself. And so there's a pain, and there's a suffering, and there's a tension between the design and the actual practical implications of the work that we now endeavor upon. The problems that begin in Genesis 3 are picked up here by Solomon in the second chapter of Ecclesiastes. So there are two problems that Solomon recognizes with work, okay? First of all, that the goodness of work, the goodness is fleeting, this is written on the insert in your bulletin. You'll see it's in verses 17 to 18 and 20 to 22, okay? That the goodness of work is fleeting. Listen to what the passage says, verse 17, not verse 18. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun, this also is vanity. See, there and then in verses 20 through 22, what Solomon is describing is very simple. I have worked, I have labored, I have used the wisdom of my mind, I have applied myself, and I have done a pretty good job. And I have accrued for myself the fruit of my labor, but you know what I've realized? One day very soon, the end will come, and all of the fruit of my labor will go to somebody else, someone who didn't work for it, and as a matter of fact, it might also be someone who's a fool, and they may squander all that I've worked for. Now, it seems, as Solomon writes these words, it seems that he has a sort of prophetic vision of what's about to happen in the future. If we suppose he's writing this at the end of his life, maybe he has begun to witness 
the foolishness in the heart of his son, which will soon be manifested in the handing off of the kingdom. You remember the story, likely. First uh, Kings 11, Solomon dies. He goes to be or to rest with uh, the, his fathers. And then it says in First Kings 12 that Rehoboam, his son, became the king. And you remember what Rehoboam does? He gathers to himself all the wise advisors that his father had, all the wise advisors of Solomon, and he says to them, all right, what's our first order of business, guys? And they say to him, well, here's what you need to do. Serve the people and they will serve you. Okay? Servant king. It's a brilliant idea, isn't it? And you know what Rehoboam says? He says, thanks, but no thanks. Okay? And it says that he surrounded himself then with advisors from his youth, his buddies from the past, the ones he grew up with, the ones who lacked the wisdom the advisors to Solomon had, and he surrounded himself with these men, and they gave him different advice. They said to Rehoboam, listen, be hard on the people. If you go hard, you'll get more out of them. Tell them, if you thought my father Solomon was hard, just wait till you see how hard I can be. And the concept was, well, they'll capitulate. They will give in. They will, they will give more honor and more prestige. They will give you more belongings, and you will be even more successful than your father Solomon. First Kings 12 says that it was very quick. The people said, no, we're not going to have that. Okay, not interested in that. And the 10 southern kingdoms, uh, tribes of the kingdom, they left. And Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, lost almost everything that his father Solomon had worked for. Okay. So when Solomon says here in verses 18 and 19, he says, who knows whether the one that will come after me will be, a, will be wise or be a fool. We can definitively say he was a fool. Hindsight is 2020, but the question has a clear answer. Everything that Solomon had worked for was squandered. Now, let me tell you something, okay? It's not simply that Rehoboam was a fool. That's part of the problem. It's part of the equation. But what Solomon is getting at this morning is the understanding that we've been designed for permanence. We have been designed for perpetuity we have a desire deep within our hearts that the work of our hands would produce fruit that is ongoing and permanent, and yet because of the fall, those things are fleeting, and they quickly leave our hands, and we can't get a hold of them, okay? And so Solomon is describing here that very thing, that the fruit of his hands does not last, that it quickly fades, that it is not permanent. It is not eternal. Now, listen, as we think about what happened in the Genesis account, these things are described in Genesis chapter 3 as God is cursing and blessing the man and the woman as, he, as they exit the garden. You remember Genesis 3, and in Genesis 3.19, God says to them, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to the dust you shall return. Okay, that's the turning point. That's the moment that everything that was designed for perpetuity, for e uh, eternality, for an ongoing sense of productivity, that all of that comes to a screeching halt. And the heart still longs for that, but the reality of the hands is that that is not attainable any longer. And there you have it, the tension between the two. There's a interesting way this was described by Leonard Wolf. I love this. I think it perfectly captures the idea here. Leonard Wolf in the early 1900s was a British politician and a, a publisher. 
He was super successful during his life. He's also the husband of Virginia Woolf. And at the end of his life, he was asked about everything that he had done and listen to what he said. He said, I see clearly that I have achieved practically nothing. The world today and the history of the human anthill during the past five to seven years would be exactly the same as it is if I had played ping pong instead of sitting on committees and writing books and memoranda. I have therefore to make a rather ignominious confession that I must have in a long life grounded through between 150,000 and 200,000 hours of perfectly useless work. There you go. I love that description. He says it would have been just as good as if I had played ping pong in the last five to seven years. I've ground through 200,000 hours of perfectly useless work. That description, that wrestling that goes on in the human heart between seeing the work of your hands but realizing it ultimately amounts to nothing and the desire for permanence, that's a result of the fall. Okay? It is one of the problems that we experience with our work. The goodness of it, the fruitfulness of it is fleeting. It quickly moves away from us. There's a second thing here that Solomon recognizes a problem with work, and that would be that it is by nature frustrating. It's by nature frustrating. That, that happens in verse 23. So not only does Solomon say, listen, there's, you can work but the fruit of your work, it disappears quickly. He also says that now because of Genesis 3, the work that we engage upon is actually terribly frustrating. Look at what verse 23 says. For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. Would you look at the three verbs that are used to describe work? It is full of sorrow. It is vexation. If you, if you remember, that's the word that means irritating or agitating. I told you the best picture you can imagine is a mosquito in your ear. That is what's being described here. That's the experience of work. And then he says, all the hours of his nights are restless. Okay? That there is no rest even in his sleep. Now listen, that description of work, you've, you've probably experienced that, haven't you? Sorrow, vexation, and restless nights. Can I get an amen? Is there an amen? Amen, amen. A chorus together. Everyone in one voice said amen, okay? Work is full of sorrow, vexation, and, and filled with many restless nights. Now I know, and I know that even if you love your job, you've experienced this, okay? You know that work will produce these things. I love the work that I do. And yet, I've experienced the sorrow, the vexation, and the restless nights of work. Okay? Work, Solomon would tell us, is by its very nature, because of the fall, it is indeed frustrating. Now listen, I want to try and categorize uh, all the different frustrations of work and to look how, how, how many different frustrations there are actually in our work, okay? Think about this. Sometimes we undervalue work, and we have a tendency towards sloth, okay? Sometimes we overvalue work, and we have a tendency towards workaholism, right? Sometimes we have ethical challenges in our work. There are employers who are more ethical than their employees, and sometimes there are employees who are more ethical than their employers. Sometimes there's genuine disagreements about work ethics, aren't there? 
Okay, sometimes we struggle in our calling and purpose, right? We have been designed for something, but we struggle with what that looks like in a practical sense. Sometimes we know what our calling and purpose is, but we just can't find work. And we go for months or years without being able to find work to labor with our hands and to put ourselves to, okay? There are many challenges with work in this world that we experience that are all related to the fall, that work is now by nature frustrating. That it is, the creation is opposed to us. That we experience this vexation as is described in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. I don't know if you all saw in the news these last two weeks, it happened two weeks ago, uh, two weeks ago, the CFO of Bed Bath & Beyond committed suicide. I don't know if you read the article. Um, he jumped off a skyscraper in New York City. And the, the people who were reflecting on this man's life and they were talking about who he was and, um, and, and what he lived for, they all reflected on he was a man who was defined by his work, okay? And they said that everything that he did was about the work of his hands. Bed Bath & Beyond, you probably know, is experiencing this great downturn and they're closing all these stores. And so they have, many people who knew him have speculated, well, this man was defined by his work. And when he found that his work was vexing, uh, that it was full of sorrow, that there was many restless nights, and there was a frustration in his work, he likely didn't know how to handle that, okay? He was at the end of his rope. That's, it's a description uh, that Solomon is now reflecting upon concerning the frustrations of work. Now listen, God also speaks about this in Genesis 3. Okay, as he's sending Adam and Eve out of the garden, he says in verse 17, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. Okay? The description there is very simple. That the work of your hands, among the creation, you will experience pain, you will experience thorns, and you will experience thistles. Okay? Pain, thorns, and thistles. Now, I, I tell you, as the whole book of Genesis, especially these first few passages in the creation account, these are not simply the events that are unfolding. There's a typological pattern that's being established for all of life, right? So God isn't simply saying, if you're a gardener, your work is going to be hard, but the rest of you, you'll be good, okay? That's not what God is saying. He's speaking about the nature of work in this world in general. And whereas work was designed so that the work of our hands with the creation, the creation would yield to us as the image bearer of God and there would be an implicit fruitfulness that because of the fall, the creation resists the work of man. Resists. And in our work, there is pain and thorn and thistles. Okay? You have experienced this. Just a few different examples. If you have looked for a job for a long period of time, or maybe you're even looking for work right now, and you say it's been months or years since you've found a job, and this has been a very painful struggle, you're experiencing the thorns and the thistles of the creation. God has promised this, right? In Genesis 3, he promised this. If you've experienced that quandary of ethical conundrums in your work and and having a different ethical expectation than maybe your employer, you've experienced the pain and the thorns of working in the creation. God has promised this, okay? All of the pain and suffering that we can describe that we've experienced in our work as part of the promise of God in Genesis 3 as the whole of creation comes under the curse as a result of the fall. 
Okay? God has promised this. And we experience this in various ways in our own work. And that may sound very hopeless. And if you read these first two chapters of Ecclesiastes, you begin to feel the hopelessness. But let me tell you something. There's a verse here at the end of chapter 2 where we begin to see the hopefulness. It's actually the first hopeful verse in this book. I don't know if you've been paying attention to that or not. If we were to categorize which of these verses are hopeful and which are hopeless, this is the first hopeful one. As a matter of fact, Martin Luther, when he was preaching through the book of Ecclesiastes, he said verse 25 of chapter 2 is a remarkable passage, and it's one that explains everything that precedes and everything that follows. Martin Luther said this is the verse that makes sense of the entire book. Look at what verses 24 and 25 say. There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? See it? It's a, it's a change of tone for Solomon. It's a change of trajectory from the first two chapters. It's a hopeful tone that Solomon strikes, and it's very interesting because it's not like anything else that he has mentioned up until this point. And I really will direct your attention to verse 25 because he says there, there's nothing better for us than to toil and to work and to labor and to enjoy the creation, but you're left with the question, why? Okay, why? And he says in verse 25 this, he says, uh, for apart from him, that is God, apart from God, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? You see what Solomon is beginning to flesh out? This is, this is a verbal processing book, okay? So he's constantly verbally processing. And we're getting the thoughts that are going through Solomon's head, and he is processing them before our eyes, and he has just talked about the emptiness of work and of toil and of pleasure and of wisdom, but he pauses for a second. The light bulb comes on in his head, and he says, wait a second. There is enjoyment and meaning, and purpose in life. For I've seen this is from the hand of God. But apart from Him, there is no hope. There's no enjoyment, right? The implicit understanding of the statement that Solomon makes is that, yes, apart from Him, there's no enjoyment or hope, but in Him is where hope, enjoyment, purpose, and meaning can be found. And so Solomon will go on to explain exactly what that means. This is what the Apostle Paul says in the New Testament when he tells Timothy, everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. See, there Paul was explaining to the young man, Timothy, listen, all of creation has been made by God. It is good for you, but it is good through the word of God and with thanksgiving. It is good as it has been designed by God. And if you are in Him, those things are good. And they will bring enjoyment and pleasure and hope and meaning and goodness. You see what this means for the, the picture of creation? It's very simple, okay? Once the relationship between God and man is remedied, and that's another question, right? How's the, the relationship remedied? But once the relationship is remedied and man can grow, go near to God... He finds that although the relationship with the rest of creation is still broken, he yet can find meaning in that work. Okay? He can find meaning in the toil of his hands. So 
It's very beautiful how that unfolds in the creation because the design of the man is still deep within his heart. He yearns for purpose and meaning in his work. And the Word of God tells us through the mouth of Solomon and then later through the the Apostle Paul that that work done in Christ Jesus who brings us near to God, that work done in Christ Jesus, though it's work done in a broken world and we experience the frustration and the brokenness of the creation, that work has ultimate meaning, hope, and purpose for eternity. Not just for this world, not just to the ends of our life, but for forever. Because that work is for the glory of God. Listen to, as we wrap up uh, this discussion in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, listen to what Martin Luther says. And one of the things that Luther would point to as he's preaching through Ecclesiastes would point to the spiritual blessings in verse 26, right? Verse 26 says, For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom, knowledge, and joy. And I think if we were writing this passage, we would probably want for the one who pleases God that he gives treasures, success, and fame or fortune, okay? But that's not what it says. Uh, Here is promised spiritual blessings, wisdom, knowledge, and joy. And these are beautiful things that God gives to those who are under grace. Listen to how Martin Luther describes the implications of this for our work in this world. In the light of this view of the matter, a poor maid should have the joy in her heart of being able to say, now I'm cooking, I'm making the bed, I'm sweeping the house. Who has commanded me to do these things? Well, my master and mistress have. What has given them authority over me? God has. Very well, then it must be true that I am serving not them alone, but also God in heaven. And that God must be pleased with my service. How could I not possibly be more blessed? Why, my service is equal to cooking for God in heaven. In this way, a man could be happy and of good cheer in all his trouble and in all his labor. And if he accustomed himself to look at his service and his calling in this way, nothing could ever be distasteful to him. That's, that's an articulation of everything that we just spoke about, that Solomon speaks about here in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Apart from God... There is no enjoyment, meaning, purpose, or hope. But in God, through Christ Jesus, all of our work takes eternal meaning and purpose. Let me, let me leave you just with a thought, okay? If you're in a, a work environment, whatever the thing that you're investing your hands into, that you're laboring to do in this world, if you're in an environment and you are not satisfied with it, you just find it to be terribly unsatisfying Every morning you wake up and you think, i got to go to work again. This is terrible. I hate this. Okay? This job stinks. Let me, let me tell you something. If in the work that you're doing right now, if in that work you're not having the joy of the Lord, in that work you will not find it in any other work. Okay? You can go find the best job on the Forbes 500 list, okay? and you can go work that job. You can work at the Googleplex where I think every day they have you know, this free time where they ride their bikes through the gardens. That's what I've heard. Okay? You could go find that best job in the world and you will have no joy. You have no contentment. You have no purpose, no meaning, no knowledge or wisdom as Solomon describes here. Okay? It won't be present. Right? The reality of the matter is you cut, copy, and paste any job into the equation. If it is apart from Christ, there's no joy. If it is in Christ, there is joy. Wisdom, knowledge, purpose, meaning, pleasure, all of these good things. 
okay? That's the reality. My encouragement to you is, is very simply this. All of us work different jobs. We all have the different things we invest ourselves in. Some of us, our jobs are well-respected uh, within all of humanity, and we go to college, and we get great degrees and earn lots of money. Some of us are scientists or lawyers, okay? Some of us work with our minds, and we're engineers or computers. Some of us work what the world would consider very basic jobs with our hands, and maybe we sweep, or maybe we clean, or maybe we, we build something, okay? Some of us are in between jobs all the time, and we're struggling to find what a permanent job even looks like, okay? For all of us, for all of the different work jobs represented here in the congregation, let me tell you something. We're all involved in the same basic work. That is, in whatever you do, work for the glory of God through Christ Jesus your Lord, okay? So I can say that whatever work you do, in one very real sense, it will all look the same. It will all look the same. You will apply your mind and your hands to the creation that is broken, that resists you at every turn. You will apply yourselves to that, and you'll do it with joy in your hearts, and you will find fulfillment and meaning in whatever you're laboring to endeavor upon because you're doing it for the glory of God, not for your own glory. Through Christ Jesus, we're brought near to God and in that we have joy, wisdom, knowledge, purpose, and understanding. That's why the Apostle Paul, as he ended his letter to the Corinthians, he said this. He said, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Whatever it is you labor upon, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that that labor, that thing which you're doing right now, you're going to wake up tomorrow morning and you're going to do that thing. That done in the Lord brings glory to God. That is where we find purpose and meaning in this world. In Christ Jesus, all things have meaning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that, Lord God, though this creation as designed was to be perfect and was to give itself to man and woman, that as we work, we would see the beautiful fruit of our labor and that not would, would not be fleeting, it would not be frustrating, but it would be good. And yet we know, Lord, because of the fall, that the creation was subjected to futility, and that now even though our hearts desire to find meaning and purpose in our labor, we cannot find it apart from you. So we ask this morning, our Lord and our God, that you would draw our hearts to you, that as we trust by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, all that we do would find meaning and purpose, hope, wisdom, and knowledge in you. And that you would be glorified, that you would be honored, that your name would be lifted up, and that we would sing your praises in every hour of every day, in all that we labor upon. We love you, Lord. We thank you that you have redeemed us through your Son, Christ Jesus. It's in his name we ask all of these things. Amen.